0: Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now, for this week's teaching. Good morning, church. If you're visiting Christ Church, my name is Mark, and I get to be one of the ministers here at the church, and we're glad you're with us this morning. Back in May, we presented an opportunity that we found out from our brothers and sisters in Christ in India that India was being ravaged by the virus in a way that no other part of the world at that time was experiencing due to the caste system in poverty and so forth, and our partnership with a ministry over in central India called Central India Christian Mission with Dr. Ajay Lal, which is a phenomenal work of ministry that's taking place, we presented to you the opportunity to be a blessing to them in their need, and in the month of May, those five Sundays, Uh, this church was generous enough to give $125,000 to help offset the cost of medicine and food and shelter and so forth. It was such a celebration of your generosity. And so we reached out to Dr. Lal and asked him, could he update us, not to thank us, but could he update us on what we were able to partner in and, and how the work is going over there. We've also been reaching out during this series that Jake talked about. We've asked some of our international partners in ministry uh, to read Micah 6-8 for us in their native language. And so Dr. Lal is also going to be reading to us from the Bible in Hindi, and he'll explain that in a moment. We want you to watch this video and celebrate what God's doing there.
1: I'm Ajay Lal from Central India. I'm standing at the oxygen-generated plant near our hospital. And uh, I'm here to extend my heartfelt gratitude and greetings to Brother Mark Christian and to the church family of Church at Ornago. Thank you so much for your generosity and a significant help that we were able to purchase this oxygen plant and also 92 oxygen concentrators and about 125 oxygen cylinders. Because we have seen that during this tragedy, hundreds of people dying without oxygen. So thank you so much. And we are able to provide the food for those who have lost the jobs who are living in the villages were who, who were literally starving over 7000 families have received the food packages and then we have these vaccination camps and uh, we are able to help over 8000 people with uh, Corona vaccination and uh, we are able to take care of them and people who were so desperate and people who were ready to take their lives. They are blessed, they are thankful, and we have touched them, and you have been a part of this, touching their lives and hearts with the love and the message of Jesus Christ. We will see many, many results in the days to come. I would like to read from uh, the book of Micah, chapter six, verse eight in Hindi language, which is spoken over 600 and uh, 50 million people around the globe and i will be speaking this in hindi language and thank you again from the depth of our hearts mm-hmm. hey manush, usnay tujhe bata diya hai ki acha kya hai yahua tusseh isse chhodo or kya chahata hai ki tu nyaay se kare krepa se prem kare krapa se prame karay aur aapne parmeshwar ke saath namrta se chale thank you so much god bless you thank you for your partnership we are extremely grateful to you.
0: So as Jake said, we as the church are going to be memorizing Micah 6.8. And even next week, asking you to participate in that. I'll expect you to know Hindi in two weeks. So you'll have a little bit more time to work on that one. Let's get the English down first. And I'm now going to pronounce him salanders for the rest of my life. Uh, out of respect. So, hey... If you're visiting, I'm just returning after being gone a few weeks, and I'm not an important equation in this, but I need to say this to our church. I am so grateful for a group of elders who care for us as a staff, and they give me time each summer to take a couple of weeks where I'm not having to write sermons for the current weekend, but actually working ahead into August and September as the fall comes and programming kicks up, and and that is a privilege I never want to just take for granted. And so I want to thank our elders for allowing me to do this. And by saying that, I also want to thank Elijah Daly and Drake Holderman for doing a fantastic job the last four weeks in preaching what is the theme of the Gospels that we spend our time focusing on and studying. And I guess really what I want to say is I'm grateful for the leadership of this church, and I'm also grateful for my teammates that I work with on staff. We're very, very fortunate as a church, outside of me, to have an incredible staff uh, who's very talented and equipped, and and, uh, they serve well. And many of them don't get to walk up on stage so that you would know them But I just want you to know that uh, I feel very privileged to be a part of this team and uh, how they take care of things so willingly for the Lord. Uh, So we appreciate them, and uh, it's good to be home. So uh, now you're stuck with me for a couple weeks. Sorry about that. Um, We're going to jump into the series that Jake mentioned called Too Much to Ask, and it really sets itself up in the book of Micah. Now, the book of Micah is not the most exciting book or the most well-known book in all of Scripture. It's certainly inspired it has a very specific focus. It was written about 800 years before Jesus. That's significant for us to note. Micah is full of three messages that God gave this young man, this prophet, to give to the people of Israel. And the, the message that he was to give them in these three messages, chapters 1 and 2 is one message, then chapters 3 through 5 is the second message, and chapters 6 and 7 is the third message. And we know there are three messages because they all begin with hear or listen, depending on your translation. And Micah was telling them that we have a covenant-keeping God. Back when Moses and the Israelites left Egypt, God said, I'm going to build a covenant with you. And in this covenant, I am going to bring these blessings into your life. And I'm going to ask you to trust me and obey the covenant. And if you do, there will be blessings in the land I'm giving you. But should you not, you're going to lose the land. So when Micah is giving this prophecy... What has happened is that there is a large section of Israel that's been taken into captivity. And Micah is warning the remaining tribes, don't give up on the covenant relationship you have with God. And that's the gist of Micah's prophecy. Now what's interesting is Micah's name is a shortened version of the Hebrew words, who is like our God. That's one of those rhetorical questions because the answer is nobody's like our God. He stands alone in perfection. So Micah's name is actually asking us the question, who is like this God of faithfulness? Who is like this almighty God who keeps his promise all the time? And if you want to boil the Old Testament book of Micah down, and we're going to be spending a few weeks on this, especially these, these verses, Micah 6, 6 through 8, what has God said to us? What are we supposed to do with this? When we look at it, the question that all of us need to ask ourselves is, does God require too much of us? Is God unrealistic in his expectations on us? Uh, now, I, I can't answer that question for you, to be honest, and I won't even try. Because if I could pull the ticker tape out of your head, and I could find out what you think on Sundays as I teach or someone else teaches, when you get to that moment, like when you think to yourself, nah, I ain't doing that, or that's ridiculous, nobody does that anymore, or that, that passage of Scripture couldn't stand anymore, when those moments enter our mind, it's do we fall on the authority of Christ, or do we fall on our own authority? So I really can't answer the question if God's expectations are too much for you. I can, however, take you to the scripture and explain God's expectations to maybe throw away some of the myths that we believe in that we don't need to, to throw away some bad theology. Because I think for many of us, we really don't understand why God requires anything from us. And so we'll make decisions based on a faulty understanding of who God is, on his wisdom and his kindness. So here's what God says to those, because the book of Micah is actually calling God to account. It's simply saying, can you trust this God? Look with me at verses 4 and 5 of Micah chapter 6. God is speaking to his people. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam, my people. Remember what Balak king of Moab plotted and what Balaam son of Beor answered. Remember your journey from Shechem to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. God is using a word that is used throughout the Old Testament Scriptures regularly, and I think it may be a forgotten part of our journey. Remember. God says, remember my faithfulness. Remember the multiple times in your life that I promised and delivered Remember my care for you, my feeding for you, my giving you water in the wilderness. Remember how I brought you out of Egypt. Remember how I released you from your slavery. And I'm a little bit tentative that we in the American culture may look at that and go, I've never been to Egypt. I've never, that never happened for me. I want you to stop and think even metaphorically. Do you remember your Egypt? Do you remember the slavery you found yourself in that you couldn't release yourself from? Do you remember how God redeemed you and restored you? How he freed you from that entrapment? How he has given you life After your death, remembering is a crucial part of understanding God's expectations for us because God is showing us, no, I have been there for you. I need you to trust my goodness and to trust my wisdom. So then Micah goes from this God presenting his faithfulness to a question that I think all of us need to wrestle with. That's why we're doing this series. How can I stand before God again? Or if I can rephrase it in a longer form, How can I as a man who has never showed any longevity of faithfulness to God, how do I ever get to walk into the presence of the God who's only been faithful to me? What expectation can I have on God when he's only been good to me and I've hardly been good in return? What right do I have to expect God to do anything for me, to care for me or to provide for me, to to give me a reason to hope? Where does that come from? And Micah is asking a series of questions on behalf of the people of Israel. He's reading their hearts and their minds. Look at verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? What right do I have? What do I have to bring to God that he should give me an audience? The exalted God. You know, part of our, our theology, part of the way we look at our world, it has to be the gospel cannot be presented on how well I do it. The gospel must always be centered on the character of God, how good and wise he is. This is what we remember when we preach to ourselves the gospel. When we communicate to our own heart first, you will never preach to another person what you're not preaching to yourself. And so in the midst of all of this, what shall me, an unfaithful man, proven on his best days to not be very good, How do I stand before the perfect covenant keeping God? See, God is immense and I'm small. God is infinite and I'm finite. Even in in this verse that we're memorizing, mortal, I'm not here forever. My shelf life is short and I have no control over it. I am momentary compared to the God who's eternal. He's perfect and pure, I'm filthy and broken. God can see the end from the beginning, and I can sometimes see some things kinda. Are you with me? I don't know what tomorrow brings. I don't know how I got where I am. I'm living every day trying to survive and do the best I can with what I understand. And in the midst of that, my God is wise, my God is good, and my God is faithful. Humans seem to respond to the immensity and the power of God one of two ways. As a pastor, I think over the last 35 years, I can conclude this. With more than anecdotal evidence. What happens when we try to realize how perfect God is? We do one of two things. We become paralyzed with fear and we say to ourselves, I have gone too far away. I have broken too many rules. I'm a bad moral person. There's no hope for me. We become paralyzed by hopelessness. Or we shrug off the brilliance and beauty of God, like it's not a big deal. Like God is contractually obligated to save us so I can just do whatever the heck I want and at the end of the day, God's gonna be nice to me because that's who he is. And both of those positions are flawed. The person who becomes paralyzed in hopelessness does not know the character of God. And the person who shrugs it off like it's not a big deal, like it's all going to work itself out in the end, and I've been bad, but I'm better than most. So comparatively to what other people do, I don't have to worry about it. That person doesn't understand the justice of God. They don't take seriously God's justice. So where are we to fall in this? This is what Micah is leading us to. How do you and I get to stand before a faithful God when we are faithless? When our best days are not very good. So Micah thinks the way we think. Look at verse 6. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? He's progressively building a case here. Can we buy God off? Is there something God wants from us? What can I give God to make up for what I didn't give God? And so he progressively walks through this. And in my research I found this fascinating. A, A one year old calf was a very precious thing. I'm told the meat was, was delicious and tender, but to give that, most people could have given a brand new calf to God. It would have been expensive for them because then they couldn't breed that calf. They couldn't produce more for their flocks. They would have given away something of great value and lost that value for the rest of their lives. So Micah said, is this what it is? Or he says, how about thousands of rams? Now that levels up. Everybody could give a calf, but not everybody could give thousands of rams. Who had that many? And then he goes totally, you know, he uses hyperbole, which is an exaggerated exaggeration. He says, how about 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Nobody had that. He's asking the question, is there something God wants from us? Is there some great extensive price that you and I can pay? Can we sacrifice something of comfort in such a way that it makes up for our past? And the answer is absolutely not. God's justice cannot be bought. It cannot be moved off of its focus. Justice is justice, and justice will be served because God is a God of justice. And Mike is asking this fundamental question if I could bring all the wealth on the planet to you, would that make up for what I've done? And the answer is no. Because we can't change what we've done. We can't change why we did it. We can't change the damage it did to us, and we can't change the damage it did to others. Now, everybody take a deep breath because. I'm not this morning trying to shame you. I want it to awaken us to what Micah's asking because I think our hearts need to ask this question. How do we get to have a relationship with God when we have rejected a relationship with God almost every day of our lives in the things we've pursued? So the answer is not new. I hope it's profound, but it's true, I know that. Only by the gospel can anyone stand before God. Now, I don't expect anybody who comes to church on a Sunday morning to look at that and go, huh, that's interesting. No, I expect you to go, yeah, Mark. But the important word there is gospel. How do you define the gospel? Because I am going to say this prophetically for the rest of my days. If the gospel is something you receive one day when you die and go to heaven, you have about one-eighth of the gospel in your head. I'd like to give you the rest of it. I would like you to understand the robust nature of the gospel. To understand, it is not a one-day solution. It is a present-day, hope-giving, life-giving, resurrecting power. It's not for then. It's for now and for then. And when we understand the gospel, we can answer Micah's core questions. And then when I ask you, is God requiring too much of you? Instead of you telling me what you think God requires of you, I would like to show you in the scriptures not only what he requires, but why. And then, because he's a good God, I want to show you he's going to give you the power to do it if you will give back to him what he asks of you. So, what is Micah's conclusion? Verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. He has shown you what is good. And you're like, When? Through the gospel. The good work that Jesus brings to us is the good expected of us. We are only to give away what we've received. We're to give away this gift. Is there something I can do to make up for my past? Nope. There isn't anything. Becoming a better me, that's a good start. That doesn't fix it. Being a better husband doesn't make up for the times I've been a horrible husband. Becoming a better father doesn't fix the issues I caused in my boy's life when I wasn't a good father or attentive or available. So no shame, but where does my hope come from? It can only come in the gospel. Moralism is not the standard. Becoming a better version of yourself or being better than everybody else does not answer any of the issues that our soul knows we have. Seems like an odd stance, right? Because most of us, if we're honest, and you think about the words I hear Christians say, they're not ignorant, and they love Jesus like I love Jesus. But when I talk to them, there's a misunderstanding. It's like, no, ultimately, the gospel tells me that God will be kind to me. But please understand this. God is kind to everybody. It's who he is. Jesus told us the rain falls on the just and the unjust. God's kindness doesn't come because he likes you more than others. God's kindness falls on everybody because he is kind. You know, every time a a strawberry grows, God is loving me. Can I have an amen? Every time the sun sets at night and comes up in the morning and I can wake up and I can breathe in and breathe out and walk around this earth, every single moment the kindness of God is being displayed. Do not spend your life seeking the kindness of God. That would be because you're rejecting its presence anyway. We are not seeking anything from God. We are seeking God. Our ultimate, the gospel teaches us that we don't need blessings. We need the blesser. Micah is not telling us how to win God over. He's telling us how God wins us over. How we enter into a relationship that we are unworthy to have and could not produce on our own. So I will ask you, not only is God expecting too much from you, you can answer that question by answering this one for me. What is the gospel to you? What is the good news that God brought to us in Jesus Christ? I want you to include not only his death, but his resurrection, his ascension, and his return. That's the gospel that gets you up in the morning with a purpose. That's the gospel that changes your heart and your mind and regenerates who you become. The fullness of the gospel, the robust gospel of the now and the then, and then whatever else God wants to do with it. That is the gospel you must preach to your heart every day because you will not preach it to others if you're not preaching it to yourself. But do not be mistaken. Micah presents to us a truth atonement must be made. God cannot. He cannot, by his character alone, act like we have not sinned against him. God does not look at our sin and ignore it because he loves us. That's a false understanding. Blood must be shed for sin. It's what the scriptures teach. God holds himself to that truth because of his character. This is why in verse 7, Micah begins to think deep, more deeper than buying God off. In verse 7, he says, "...shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul." He is saying something drastic. If I can't buy God off, then do I give my life away? What makes this right? Now, give me about 45 seconds. I'm going to bore you, but you're used to that, right? So if you just turn off for 45 seconds, come back to me in one minute and I'll be here. Here we go. There is an Old Testament statute that's important that we wouldn't understand in our culture. And that is the firstborn of everything belongs to God. And it was to be redeemed. That's why, Jesus, that's why Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple and offered the minimum payment they could afford. It's all they could afford, two doves, to redeem their firstborn son. And we kind of think, this is really weird. And God says, no, as creator and redeemer, the sins of the family will be paid for by the redemption of the firstborn. Now, the firstborn in our world is just the luckiest one to be born first. But in Jesus' day and in the Old Testament, the firstborn became the father when the father died. The firstborn took care of the mother. The firstborn took care of the family. The firstborn took care of all that the father possessed. So when they thought of the firstborn, they weren't thinking of just the first child born. They were thinking of their future. Who was going to take over their future? And God said it is his requirement that the firstborn belongs to him. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense in our world. Because when my parents die on those unfortunate days that my mom and dad are gone, my father has a will, I've seen it. I know how he's gonna divide his estate between his four sons, and we are probably, I hope this isn't too harsh, we're probably gonna liquidate the home, sell the property, take what we want from our folks, liquidate the rest of it, and we will divide that evenly amongst the four of us, and we will go our merry way. Well, sad way. Because we will have lost something more important than what we gained. Now, in Jesus' day, they didn't do that. They didn't liquidate the land. They didn't liquidate the flocks. They didn't sell their property. They held on to it for dear life because that was their life. There was no bank account. There was no 401k. There was no money sitting under a mattress. They lived day to day by the provisions of God. So when God said, I require your firstborn, it was a bigger thing to them than we could ever imagine. Now, come back to me if you turned that off. Let me tell you a story that makes more sense of it. Genesis chapter 22. Abraham, the father of promise. He has one child. His name's Isaac. He had Isaac when he was over 100 years of age. His wife was over 90 years of age. It was a child of promise. And God said, I am claiming the firstborn from you. I want you to sacrifice for him. And you may wonder why Abraham doesn't throw his arms up in the air and go, God, you're cruel. You're heartless. You don't care about me. No, Abraham understood. Who did the firstborn belong to? God. God was calling in a debt that Abraham owed. So, Abraham took him to Mount Moriah, and he and Isaac climbed to the top of the mountain, and they made ready for the sacrifice. Isaac shows as much character as Abraham does, because Isaac says, Debt? Uh, We brought everything but the animal. And Abraham says, Son, God will provide. And Isaac understood what that meant. He was being claimed as the debt owed to God. Now, I believe this with all my passion. Isaac was a young man, probably a teenager. His father was 100 and something, 115. All Isaac had to do was run five feet away from his dad. His dad wasn't catching him. Are you with me? Isaac was not thrown up there against his will. He submitted to his father's authority. He submitted to the debt owed to God. He knew the law. And he laid himself on the altar, and his father lifted up the knife and was about to take his son's life, and God said, Stop, I know you love me because you did not withhold your only son whom you love. Is that God just ignoring Abraham's sin? No, there was a poor ram, the unforgotten person in the story. The poor ram stuck in a bush. He died. His blood paid the sacrifice. And we think, oh, that's a cool, poetic, romantic way for God to act like sin's not a big deal. No, because generations later, on Mount Moriah, which is now named Mount Calvary, God would take his son to that mountaintop and his son would willingly lay himself on the altar And God would lift up the blade of judgment and he would drop it directly into his son's life because Jesus gave his life up so that we could say to God, I now know that you love me because you did not withhold your only son whom you love. How can you stand before God in your unfaithfulness? Because of the faithfulness of Jesus On Mount Calvary, on that cross, atonement was made. God did not ignore our sin. God did not act like it was a big deal. So we should not be paralyzed and we should not shrug it off. We should receive the way back to God and it's only through Jesus. Mike is answering his own question. So when he says he has showed you, O mortal, what is good, when did he do that? With Jesus. That's when he did it. So what we're asked to do, is it too much to ask that we would do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God? Absolutely not. Why? Because that's what we received. He's only showing us how to redeem a lost world the way God redeemed us. He's only asking us to do what we received. Nothing more. Is it too much to ask? It is not. But I'll pause. Some of you hearing my voice today, are aware of the facts of the gospel, but it's not your story. The gospel has not become yours. Why? Because you are trying to be better, do more, try harder. You cannot appease God's justice with your best efforts going forward. The only thing that atones for your sin is the blood of an innocent person, which is why we can't save ourselves. Micah is not telling us how to impress God. He's actually showing us what someone who is impressed by God lives their lives to do, to give to others what you received from him. If you've never been washed in the blood of Jesus, you've seen it demonstrated today. In this strange thing the Bible calls us to, being washed in water, being cleansed from our sins, and walking into newness of life is the wedding ring of commitment to Christ. It's the moment when we publicly commit ourselves to him and receive from him this way to the presence of a faithful God. If you have never made that decision, I would ask you this question. Do you want to face the justice of God or do you want to receive the mercy of God? But don't just escape hell. Choose to walk in the gospel that provides you a relationship with the God of faithfulness, restored in spite of ourselves. And for the rest of us, who are not better than anybody in this room, but for the rest of us, what has God shown us? What does he require of us? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. And for those of you who are looking at the clock going, he's just getting started. Now we got a couple of weeks. I do want to introduce justice to you this morning. But I want you to understand, doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God are not actually three separate things. It's one life lived Jesus was asked a question. So what is the law boiled down to? He said, love God and love others. Walk humbly with God, do justice, and love mercy. You see, Micah was preaching the gospel before the gospel could actually be preached. He's just showing us what Jesus showed us. He's demonstrating to us what it is. But I need you to know this. The word justice, and I'll be brief. The word justice, to walk justly, the only way, the only way it's used in all of Scripture is how we treat Widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. It's the only way you can do justice, is to care for those who cannot care for themselves. Listen to Psalm 82. I love these four verses. God presides in the great assembly, He renders judgment among the gods. He's the only God. Verse 2 How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? How long will we turn our faces from those who are being mistreated? How long will we act like the injustice in the world is not our problem? Verse 3 Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the wicked from the needy and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Rescue the weak. Help those who can't help themselves. Serve others. It's not about politics, it's not about comfort. It's about opportunity to do for others what Jesus did for us. Remember your slavery in Egypt and how God delivered you through into the promised land of hope and blessing and life. A billion people living in poverty, starving, lacking water, basic food, simple medicines. 153 million orphans, 42 million babies terminated every single year. 27 million people living in slavery right now. The fastest growing industry on earth is sex slavery. And unfortunately, the most profitable. What can I do for 153 million orphans? 42 aborted babies. 27 million people in sex trafficking throughout the globe. See, justice is not always bringing the hammer of the law down. Justice may be living out the mercy of the gospel in the lives of one person. You and I cannot solve all the epidemic issues facing the darkness in our world, but we can bring the light of Christ and the justice of God into one life at a time. He's not asking to solve all of it. He's asking us to care as Jesus cared for us. And I know we're in a world that's divided, and right now everything has a political tone to it, which is so unfortunate, but I hope in the church it won't be. But I want to give you a quote I gave you a month or so back. It's too good to use only one time. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was said in 1967, before you ask a man to pull himself up by his bootstraps, you should ask if he has boots. So yes, there are some taking advantage of the system. Let's not worry about that. Let's be the solution. Let's give to others what Christ gave to us. Let's love well, love hard, and love long the way Jesus did for us. How do we ever stand before God? We don't on our own merit. We stand because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And how many more could stand before Him, redeemed by the gospel, because we became the church to do justice? This morning, we have to begin with prayer. We have to pray that God would open our hearts and our eyes. You're not bad people. We just are distracted people. And we hide behind busyness as if that's an excuse. What can happen in your intersections of everyday life of somebody who needs to know they're loved and valued by Jesus himself, the way you found out you were loved and valued by Jesus? Somebody cared enough to tell you the story of Christ, to love you, to forgive you, and to walk with you. Can we do that? So we're gonna pray this morning for the poor, for the orphans, for the enslaved, for the persecuted, for the unreached, because this is God's will. He has showed you, O mortal, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justly. Spend a few moments with these prayer prompts, asking God to open your eyes and your heart for someone this day that you can bring the justice of the gospel into their world because of your love for Christ. Let's go to our Father. Thanks again for checking out this podcast.